So good evening, everyone. Actually, we're relatively on time. Not too bad. It's nice to see everyone. Um, it's been a long time since we've been, since we've had the privilege of gathering together for a nice shiur, you know, in person. We were trying to keep things going by Zoom, but it's not the same as uh, having everyone under the same roof and uh, seeing each other's faces without any anything in between. So uh, it's, I feel very privileged to, to be able to gather with you, and I have only, you know, about six weeks left that I'm going to be here in this country, at least for the foreseeable future. So, like I was saying, I have to, uh, after, after I come to Israel, I have to stay there for at least six months. I'm sure that I'll be back to see everyone, but it'll be, and I'm sure we'll organize Shurim and we'll get to see each other, but it will be uh, after some delay. <clears throat> the, uh, the topic was brachot that we were going to talk about, and, uh, and this, this topic was given to me, so it was given to me with, with a lot of latitude for interpretation of different angles, that I could, different directions I could take it in. So I'm trying to consider to myself, how, does a, how do we relate to brachot in our lives? How do we maintain perspective of what's really important in our lives? What are the different meanings that we sort of associate with bracha? Because there's a lot of difference. There's a lot of different contexts in which we use the word bracha. If you think about it, it's not like in only one sense. Like you say a bracha on food, but that's not the same thing as saying that you have bracha in your life. You give a bracha to a person, but that's not the same thing as, uh, as, as the bracha that you say on food, which is one is directed towards a person, one is directed to a shat. So the term bracha is a term that has a lot of different meanings. And what it means to be blessed or what, it mean, what a blessing really is, I think is not, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's not, it doesn't always, in every context, it kind of manifests itself differently. But there's a common denominator to the different meanings of bracha. What I wanted to focus on, and I think this was the, uh, the idea of everlasting brachot. I think the title was the idea of how can a person feel blessed, or how can a person feel grateful, how can a person maintain perspective, even though life inevitably has ups and downs. So if we're looking at the moment by moment, we might not always say that we feel blessed at that moment, but people will always say, Baruch Hashem, you know? Baruch Hashem is always the answer. Ask, how are you doing? Baruch Hashem. But then the question is, Baruch Hashem good, Baruch Hashem bad, uh, you know? Which Baruch Hashem is it? Because the Havdil say, Baruch Dayan Ha'emet, on a bad news. You know, you also th- you also recognize Hashem for the t- the difficult times, not only for the good things. So Baruch Hashem, true, everything comes from God. All of the blessings come from God, but that doesn't necessarily mean that at this moment, what's happening in my life is uh, is pleasant, right? We all agree with that. So you know, there's a story. Everyone's heard this story, but it's a it, there's a good story about a uh, about a farmer that you know that this farmer. His, uh, his horse runs away and all of his neighbors say, wow, what a shame, what a terrible thing. Your horse ran away and you needed that horse to plow your field. And he said, I don't know. I don't know if it's good or bad. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad. I don't know. A day or two later, the horse comes back leading a bunch of wild horses with it that it made friends, you know, it brought back friends. So now the, now the farmer had a lot of horses instead of just one. And the neighbors say, wow, what a blessing that your horse ran away. If it hadn't run away, it wouldn't have come back. What a blessing. And the farmer said, 
Who knows if it's a blessing? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Who knows? A couple of days later, his son, the son of the farmer, is trying to like tame, break one of the wild horses, you know, train it properly. And he gets thrown by the horse and he breaks his leg. So the farmer's friends come around and say, oh, it looks like you were right. It wasn't such a blessing to have those wild horses because look, you know, now your son's leg is broken. The farmer says, who knows? Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, who knows? A couple of days later, there's a draft for the army because the country's going to war. And the farmer's son gets an exemption from the draft because he has a broken leg, he can't go out to war. And so again, was it a blessing or a curse? Who knows? Maybe it turned out to be a blessing in the end that he had the broken leg. We only see the immediate. We have a limited range of vision in terms of how much we can see of the big picture. And so being able to determine what is good and what is bad can be extremely subjective. And everyone in this room, whether you have many years under your belt like me, an old person, or whether you're a young person, you've had experiences where you thought something was really a bad turn of events and it ended up being good, positive, you got delayed and you turned out meeting somebody that you wouldn't have met or having an experience you wouldn't have had or avoiding some bad outcome that you wouldn't have avoided. We've all had situations where life seems to be taking a detour in a direction that is not so good and it turns out to be good after all. And we've all had situations in which we've thought that things are going exactly the way that we planned and exactly the way that we wanted and lo and behold, it ends up that we regret having taken that path and things don't turn out the way that we imagined, the way that we had dreamed because there's a, there's a negative side to what we thought was, was going to be something positive. So being able to determine whether something is good or bad can be very subjective and, 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 and transitory. It's very transitory because in the moment maybe it feels good, but we know that that doesn't always mean that it is good. You know, there's a, uh, there's a story about the... Uh, about that the Chafetz Chaim used to tell. He used to tell a lot of parables, a lot of like uh, stories, invented stories, but to make a point about a person who comes to a synagogue in a town that he's never been in before, visiting for the first time. And he's watching the Gabayim giving out the different honors, you know, giving, they, they go all the way to the back of the room, they get a Kohen for the Aliyah Kohen, then they go to another side of the room. They take uh, another person for the next honor. For the, He sees all the distribution of honors and it seems like all over the place. You know, why is he running over here to get someone for this aliyah? Then he's going over there for that one, the back. And so he goes up to, so this stranger goes up to the guy and he says, excuse me, this doesn't make any sense. There's a Kohen sitting right in the front. Why do you go all the way to the back? You know, there's plenty of people on, the, on this, in this part of the synagogue. Why do you go all the way to the side? Why did you go over there? Why did you skip over this person? Why did you include that person? And the guy says, you just got here today. You're not, you, you've never even been to the synagogue before. You don't know, last week, this person already had the aliyat kohen and gave it to the other person. You don't know, that person had a yard site. That person had this reason. This person has that reason. You don't know the reason because you're new here. How could you presume to know who should be getting, who shouldn't be getting? And so the Chavetz Chaim used that analogy to talk about life, that we think that we know how things should be going but we've only been here for a minute in terms of like cosmically speaking in the big picture. How long have we been here? How long do we actually end up being here? A tiny slice of time. If you look at the amount of time 
that human beings have been on earth and you compare it to the amount of time that any one of us, no matter how long you've lived, and no matter how long you do live, hopefully everyone 120, that 120 years is a tiny fraction of a fraction of a fraction of the amount of time that human beings have been on earth, let alone how long the universe has been here. And yet we think that in our limited time, with our limited perspective, we're gonna be able to determine whether things are going the way they should or shouldn't go. It's very presumptuous to think that way. We can't really see the big picture. So I think that's something important to remember. Even within our own lives a lot of times, what seems to be a downturn ends up being an upturn and vice versa. Let alone in the big picture, could we really determine what is good or bad because we don't have a frame of reference. The only frame of reference is Hashem's frame of reference. He's the only one that sees the entire thing. He knows the entire story from beginning to end and why things are happening the way that they are. But let's just even take it down a notch from that. You know, we, with what we're dealt in life, you know, it's very easy. I remember one time I was with somebody years ago. This must have been like almost 20 years ago. I was visiting a community, not here, in a different state. doesn't matter where. And I was invited to stay for Shabbat. I was like a guest in whatever rabbi in residence. I don't know, whatever they call it. And I was staying with a family that I guess was a very wealthy family because they were the, you know, among the important leaders of the community. So they host the visiting speakers and all that. And I'm walking with this person. And one of the amazing things about this, this gentleman, who was a very nice person, is that every mezuzah that he passed, he kissed. Even if the doorway was very wide, you know, like you come to like a, like a social hall, you know, and you walk and there's like five feet to the, he would walk over and kiss the mezuzah every single time. And I said to myself, this is a person with a lot of leisure. They have the ability to walk. They're not in a rush. Do you know what I'm saying? They have an easy time because this guy's not, never in a rush. He doesn't have time to go kiss the mezuzah. Obviously there are going to be times he can't do that, but I'm saying when life is going easy, easy for you, you feel like you have more ability to breathe and you feel more grateful naturally for everything that's going on and you feel more you know, connected to Hashem, like Hashem is working things out for you just the way that you wanted them to be. And that's oftentimes how we process when Hashem is doing what, what is good. It's when, when it's what we like. Right? Because that's our frame of reference. Like what we like is good and what we don't like is not good. So if you look at kids and parents and everyone in this room is a kid of somebody and some of us are parents of somebody, everyone who has, a ch- who, who has parents, which all, all of us experience what it's like to have a parent, know that our parents, hopefully they always have the best intentions in everything that they do. I'm assuming that, right? I'm assuming that. But... Children oftentimes get angry at their parents. And the reason they get angry at their parents is because they feel that their parents don't understand, they don't know what they're talking about, and, and, and they're standing in the way of me doing what I want to do and live my life the way that I want to live it, and, and, and they're out of touch, and all the other things that you could say about parents, you know, that we all said about our parents when we were younger, and that you guys say about your parents, those who are younger than me, which is everyone here, say about, you know, say about yours. So that's, an, that's a generational phenomenon. You know, this is one of the things that, you know, Mark Twain, the author said, you know, when I was younger, my father 
you know, my father didn't know anything. He's like, I'm surprised how much he's learned in the last five years, you know. And then as an adult, he realized his father actually had a lot of experience and understood. And I think one of the things that for as you get older, you appreciate your parents more, not necessarily because you're going to then all of a sudden agree with everything that they say. I'm not sure that that ever happens. But what you do begin to see is that they had your best interests in mind even when they were opposing things you wanted to do that you thought were in your best interest, but they saw things from a different perspective. You understand what I'm saying? And having a life where everything always goes your way sounds amazing, but it's actually not that good. Because if everything falls, the people that everything falls in their lap and goes their way all the time are spoiled. What does it mean spoiled? What, what do we, when we talk about like a spoiled bratty person, okay? What kind of person are they? They're a person that expects the world to conform to what they want all the time, you know? They might be a bridezilla. You heard the term a bridezilla? You know? None of you were like that. I'm saying, you know, I've heard of such a thing that they have like, you know, the bride that every little thing has to be just exactly right. And if not, you never heard that before? Yeah, and, then, and, and, and they will go crazy if things are not exactly the way that they're supposed to be. It's true. There's some people like that. There's something like that. But usually they don't, usually if they're like that on their wedding day, they're probably like that in a lot of other areas of their life as well. Right? It's usually a character trait that they expect. You know, they expect the world to fall in line with their wishes. And that's not a healthy way to be because it leads to a lot of frustration and a lot of difficulty. So, actually just to indulge everything that we want wouldn't be in our best interest. And that's exactly what Adam and Chava were supposed to learn in the garden. That it's not actually a blessing for things always to be accessible and always to be free to you and always do whatever you want. It's not actually a blessing, unbridled gratification because you don't learn anything from that. Well, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to talk about that too. You're absolutely right. I don't think it's a contradiction. Absolutely. That, I, th- that's something I'm going to talk about. You're abs- no, I think you're absolutely right. That's also true. I think it's, it depends on the person and how they're processing what's going on in their life. I think a lot of times people... I, I, when I think in my mind of the example that I was giving of... I'm, I'm thinking more of like what Eov, the story of Eov. That Eov was a person that we read about in the book of Eov. One of the things that you're allowed to read about on Tisha B'Av is a person who had everything. He had a beautiful, large family. He had wealth. He had honor. He had like every material good that a person seeks. He had it. And he had it to the utmost degree. And And he was very pious. And he was constantly offering sacrifices to God. And he offered sacrifices on behalf of his kids and said lest they do something that is not right against God, I'm going to offer constant sacrifices to God. And he was, he was very religious and he was very charitable. But then all of a sudden, the entire edifice collapses on him. He loses everything, everything, the kids, the money, the health, his health, everything that he had is gone very, very quickly. And all of a sudden he's destitute and he's in mourning and he's unhealthy and he's in pain and he's suffering. And the question is, 
what's his response going to be? That's who I was thinking of, that kind of person. In other words, when a person feels that they have what they, what they need and that things are going their way, there are definitely some people who will start to think that they are the cause of their own success and they forget Hashem. That happens. But I'm talking about, get, imagine a person doesn't do that. You know, they're thankful and they're grateful, just like a person. You know those people who are so nice to you when you do what they want, but the second that you don't do it, like they, they, they're mean to you, you know? Like, you know, we all know people like that. They're very, very happy and smiling as long as we're doing whatever they want and we're going along with it. And as soon as you pose them to the slightest thing, like they, they can't handle it, right? So that's, Eov wasn't that bad because he was able to take a lot of beatings before he finally started to question, but his relationship with God was based on, look, God's doing for me what I want, so I'm going to do what God wants. It's a good deal. You have the Almighty doing for you everything, and you're doing your little part on earth, and it's a nice, it's a nice arrangement that you have. It works out well. But as soon as the other partner is defaulting, and now all of a sudden I'm not getting what I was planning to get or what I was expecting to get, so now... Why should I keep paying into the system, so to speak? You know, what, what, what's the justification for everything that I've been doing up to now? That happens to people. And so the, the question is, does that, and I, the, what is it, when we talk about what it means to be blessed, I think it's important to understand that it definitely doesn't mean getting everything that you want whenever you want it. Because just like you know, and I'll, I'll use an example that we can all relate to, a little kid wants to eat candy all the time. Every single one of us knows that's not good. Even though we also like to eat candy, but only some of the time, okay? Because we know that you're not supposed to eat it all the time. It won't be healthy. You don't have candy for breakfast. Well, maybe you do. I don't want to judge anybody. I'm just saying everybody knows that that's not the best thing. But a kid doesn't know that. They'll just keep eating it. Right? So you'll stop them from doing it. Oh, but you're so mean. I hate you. You're so mean. A kid will say that. Right? A little kid will say, I hate you because you didn't give me candy. So you're doing it for their own good because you realize that it's not actually a blessing. They think it's a blessing to have candy. Unlimited candy. It's a blessing. It's not really a blessing because it's harming them. It's just a pleasure that they're getting at that moment. And that's the problem. We mistake pleasure or comfort in our life with blessing. We think that the blessing is to have the pleasures and the comforts, the immediate gratifications and satisfactions of our desires. We think that's what the blessing is. So when we don't have it, we say, where's the blessing? But that's not really the blessing. The blessing is in not in having what we want at any particular time. What is really a blessed person? It's not somebody who gets what they want. Somebody who gets what they need. What, what, when you get what you need, you're blessed. Not when you get what you want. Because when you get what you want, sometimes it's harmful for you. Sometimes it's, it's not in your best interest. But when you get what you need, it's in your best interest. And sometimes what we need is a jolt out of our comfort zone so that we improve ourselves, so that we become aware of certain things we weren't aware of. Sometimes having life go against us has, forces us to wake up and think differently or adapt Sometimes a person loses their job, let's say, they have to go looking for a new job. You know what? That can be one of the greatest blessings. People don't realize that. And I've, you know, I've spoken about it before, but um, I, I think in uh, uh, maybe it was uh, this past High Holidays that I was talking in the, in, uh, or Esther to the, younger, to the younger crowd, and I was sharing a story with them about somebody that I know, know for years, that she had, uh, she was a, someone who was a congregant of mine in my old community and we've stayed, you know, 
in touch here and there over the years. How are you doing? You know, as she was married with her kids growing up and all that. And, uh, and she had written to me an email that, you know, a real disaster happened that, you know, she had lost her, she was expecting their second or third child. I can't remember now, lost track. And, uh, and she and her husband had both lost their jobs. This was before COVID time. They both lost their job. And uh, so now all of a sudden they were like in a major financial crisis as well as like they have a baby. They had a baby on the way and they just didn't know what to do. And she was really very stressed out about that. And so I was able to help them like in the short term find like a helpful loan for them to, to cover their bills, which was the immediate need. But I said to her at the time, I just want to tell you, I'm envious of you. I'm envious of you. And she said, why would you be envious? Everything is going wrong in my life. I feel like God shut me out. Like he was giving us everything. We both had amazing jobs. And now, now we have nothing. How could you say that? I said, because I know that you're going to end up finding something 10 times better than what you have now. I know it. I've seen it a million times. Because what happens is when you're comfortable with what you have in your life and where you are, you don't look for other opportunities. But now that you're looking, you're going to find something even better that was sitting right in front of you in plain sight and you never saw it because you were too busy doing what you were already doing. But now that your mind's been open, your eyes have been open, you're going to find something better and you're going to tell me how much better it is. And I'm going to be waiting for your email or your call to tell me how much better it is. And guess what? For once I was right. You know, it was one of those rare occasions. A few months later, she said, I can't believe it. I got a much better job. My husband got a much better job. They both went out looking and because they were looking, they found better options than even what they had before. And it's a general principle in life. An older person, a person older than me, told me this years ago when I was changing jobs years ago. Said, I just want to tell you that in my experience, every time I've changed jobs, I've ended up in a better place. Every time. Why is it? It's not because of magic. It's because the challenges of life are one of the ways God blesses you because he opens your eyes to see opportunities that you never would have seen if you were just going along with your comfortable, complacent existence. You wouldn't have seen that. So who is the more blessed person? The person who had the job that paid $15 an hour or the person who lost that job but now... They end up finding a job that pays $50 an hour. I'm just, you know, I'm using an example, but I'm using just an imaginary example. But the point is that that person is actually more blessed, even though they had to endure hardship. They're more blessed because they're blessed with the opportunity to rise up higher. And if you were looking, you would ask them in the moment, who's more blessed? The person who's working for $10 an hour, or I guess it's $15 an hour now, minimum wage, whatever. Or, you know, or the person who's, who, who lost their job. You said, well, definitely the person who has at least some income. Not necessarily, because that person could be in a situation that they're locked into it and they don't see any possibility of a different life and they don't see any possibility of change. And the one who's out on down on their luck right now is looking for something new. So they have the potential to find it because their mind and their eyes and their heart are open. That's a big blessing, actually. So blessing is relative, you have to look beyond the immediate of pleasure and pain or comfort versus disturbance to see what real blessing is. Blessing is the opportunity to grow. And a lot of times opportunities to grow 
happen from something that's a disturbance in your life. Something that's uncomfortable in your life is what causes it. Very few people ever change their lives even for the better unless there's discomfort. Very few people wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I decided I'm going to do this better, I'm going to change this, unless there's some kind of discomfort. Without any kind of attention, if there's no tension to push, pressure, then, then, then what's the reason? Most people, they become healthier in their life, for example, because... God forbid they got sick or the doctor said you have this problem or they're, ha- you know, they, they're, they're having some kind of an issue that they have to all of a sudden adapt to, uh, uh, to health concerns. That's not, the, that's not the ideal. Of course, it's better to, uh, to do that you know, as, as a choice to begin with. But most people don't change unless something inspires the change. And usually the inspiration of change is where things are not going that well. So then the question is, what's really the blessing? Where's the blessing? The blessing is in the opportunity to grow that sometimes comes from unlikely sources. It sometimes comes from things that we'd rather avoid because we like things remaining with the status quo. It's more comfortable. But that's not necessarily a blessing. Sometimes a blessing is to have difficulty. And in fact, there's a, uh, there's a very, I, and, and again, this is another one of my favorite quotes I'm sharing with you, but it's something that always comes to my mind whenever we talk about blessing and curse. If you look in the Torah, you will see there are many, many, many more curses than blessings. Both times. In the book of Vayikra at the end, where, Moshe, where, where the first time that the Bachot and Kolot, the blessing curses, curses are given, there's a small paragraph of blessings and then a lot of curses with a lot more detail. The curses are a lot more graphic. The blessings are very vague in general. And then again, in the book of Dvarim, when Moshe Rabbeinu repeats it, it's a very short paragraph about the blessings and a very long, gruesome detail. It's like, it's like disturbing graphic detail about people eating their children. Bad stuff. You know, it's very, very graphic and, and, and very shocking. Whereas the blessings are just like, oh yeah, you're going to have food and you'll have lots of kids and just sort of like not, as much, not nearly as much detail. So in that, in his commentary, uh, the Ibn Ezra, who's one of the famous commentaries on the Torah, says... Many foolish people have concluded that the world has more bad than good because look how much bad there is in the curses and the klalot versus how much good. The Torah didn't have that much to say about good. But about bad, oh, there's a lot to say about bad, a lot about bad. He says, but that's not the way to look at it. He said, the blessings are given in a generality, in a general way. The curses are given in specific. Because curses, it's the specificity of the curses that give them the impact. Why does he, what's, what's, what's the point? What is, what is he really pointing out? I think he's pointing out something so true. That a person who is very, you see, the person who is a, a, attached to the physical world and things have to be just so, they have to be exactly a certain way in order for that person to be, to feel comfortable and to feel satisfied that person, every little detail, they're sensitive to it. Every little detail. So when they're reading the Klalot, like every little detail is also spelled out. Because every little detail is going to rattle them and bother them. But when it comes to Brachot, a person who's really living according to the way of Hashem doesn't have many expectations from Hashem about how the world should look. See? He doesn't have that many, or she doesn't have that many expectations or demands that the world has to be a certain way. As long as we're following the path of Hashem, we know that the blessing takes all kinds of different forms. 
Sometimes they're up, sometimes they're downs. It's the direction in general that makes it a direction of blessing. It's not the particulars. So when the klalot, the curses, are addressing a person who is stuck in the physicality of this world and who is distant from God, and in order to wake them up, they need shock value of a lot of curses. But for a person who, want, who is already following the light of God and already living according to the way of Hashem, just let me know that I'm going to be okay. That's all I need to know. So I know that I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be able to be successful. It might be ups, downs. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Okay? But I, I know that I'm going to be blessed and I'm going to be okay. And this is one of the things that we talked about last year when I was doing the shiurim about Chovot HaLivavot, when, when we were during the serious lockdown, when nobody was seeing each other. Talked about Chovot HaLivavot and, and talked about how the tzaddik, the person has real bitachon. We learn shara bitachon in uh, the, the gate of trust. What does it mean to trust in God? Trusting doesn't mean that you know what, it's gonna, what, the, what God is going to deliver to you. It doesn't mean that you know what form the blessing is going to take, that you can expect that you can predict it. That's not what trusting is. Trusting means you're willing to adapt because you know that there are many different ways that God might deliver the blessing. If you're not willing to adapt and God has to come to you, then you have a problem. But if you know that following him, you will find the blessing, then you never have a problem. I'll give you the best example of all. Avraham Avinu. Imagine you're Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu was told by Hashem, leave everything behind and go to the land of Canaan. Everything. Okay? And he didn't have Zoom or FaceTime to talk to his relatives. That was it. Goodbye. Leaving. Okay? He comes to Eretz Yisrael after he left everything behind. He gets, it wasn't called Eretz Yisrael yet, right? It was called Eretz Kena'an. Comes to Eretz Kena'an. He's a stranger. He pitches the tent. He's sitting there. And what happens immediately when Abraham gets to Kena'an? Do you remember? What happens? What happens as soon as he gets there? There's a famine. There's star- starvation going on in the land. Now, if you were Abraham Avina, what would you be thinking? Oh my God, I left home. I left everything. I had a comfortable bed to sleep in at night. I had a roof over my head. I had food in the refrigerator. Well, they didn't have a refrigerator. You know. I had everything I needed. Everything was going fine and I could have my relationship with God and I was f- figuring out that there's only one God and all that. And now I come here. He tells me to come to this place. What kind of a desert is this? They don't even have food or water. What am I supposed to do? I slept all the way here for nothing. Right? That's, that's what you would think, right? You would think that he would think that. What does he do? And, Avra, and, and Hashem promised him that he's going to be He's going to be blessed successful, famous, all of these wonderful things. How am I going to do that if I die of starvation? What does Abraham do? Does he sit and complain? Does he wait for the rain to come? He doesn't even do a rain dance or any kind of way to manipulate the world to make it work his way. What does he do instead? He goes to Egypt. He goes right to Egypt. He doesn't even wait. He goes right to Egypt. He says, okay, we have one problem. They might kidnap my wife. Okay, so we'll say that she's my sister. But he went. Now you would say, wow, talk about bad luck. Talk about God not being on your side. Shouldn't he be backing you up in this whole mission that he sent you on this crazy mission to leave everything behind and go and end up in Eretz Kanaan and he doesn't even back you up that there's a little bit of rain or some food? Come on, basic necessities. What kind of support is that from God? That's what you might think. But Avram doesn't ever say that. He goes to Egypt. His wife gets taken from him. When Avram leaves Egypt, he ends up being wealthy and famous. Because now he's been given all these gifts from the Pharaoh. 
Now everybody knows who Abraham is. He's on the cover of every tabloid. The guy whose wife was taken by the Pharaoh and then God plagued him, plagued the Pharaoh on behalf of Abraham. Believe me, he's famous and he's rich. And now when he comes back to Eretz Kenan, everyone's interested in what he had to say. Before he was just like the guy who stands outside the subway in Penn Station and screams at you about, you know, the end of days, you know. And you just say, that guy's a kooky guy, right? Now... He has a strange message, but people are willing to listen. This is somebody of substance. You understand what I'm saying? So was going to Egypt a curse? Was the famine in the land a curse when he came? Maybe it might have seemed like that in the short term to somebody looking from the outside, but it definitely wasn't, was it? Because he adapted. He said, okay, this isn't where God wants me to be right now because he didn't tell me to give my life for Eretz Canaan and I'm not supposed to starve. I'll go to Egypt. And what ends up happening, that's where the blessing was hiding the whole time. It's like a scavenger hunt. If you follow the clues, you end up with the treasure, right? He followed the clues. He said, okay, God told me to come here. He, didn't, he never said I should die here. He said, come here. Now I'm starving. I'll go get some food in Egypt. It was the right thing to do, turns out, because that was where the blessing was hidden all along. So, um, are we always going to be there? Well, we're gonna. That's a different layer of the of of the uh, you know of the process. In other words, even in what I'm talking about now is even in terms of the blessings that are the conventional kinds of blessings. Meaning, even in terms of success in the conventional way of having the material blessings. A lot of times it comes from adapting to reality as opposed to reality adapting to us. And that's how we find these opportunities. But of course, beyond that, and that's really what the story of Eov is about. The main story of Eov is that the material blessings themselves are not the goal. They're only a means. The real blessing is the relationship with God that you have. That's why we say... When, when, when Moshe Rabbeinu talks to the Jewish people, he says, what's the bracha? He says, I'm going to give you today the blessing and the curse. The blessing is that you listen to the mitzvot of Hashem. And the curse is if you don't listen, you'll get the curses. But the point is that if you listen, the listening itself, that is the blessing. Of course, the ultimate blessing and what Eov had to learn is, it's not transactional. It's not like, oh, I'm being religious for God and God delivers me blessings. It's that the real blessing is the service of Hashem. That's the ultimate of ultimate blessings. And in fact, the more a person is attuned to that, the, the easier it is for them to adapt to the changing material fortunes because the material fortunes become less and less significant. The specifics, the particulars, that they're, are, they're less and less attached. And that's why like the Rambam says when he explains the book of Eov, he says that the righteous people appreciate suffering. That they appreciate it. Not like, we don't have a Christian idea that suffering is holy. We don't have that idea. That's, that's not a Jewish idea at all. No, there's no such thing as that. We believe like enjoying the world is good and a person should enjoy. We don't have an idea that suffering in its own right. You see, the Christians have this idea that since the body is evil and only the soul is good, so therefore torturing the body is like a mitzvah. They have this idea. 
We don't have that idea at all. That's, that I, we consider that idea absurd and ridiculous because God created the physical as well as the spiritual and God wouldn't want to destroy either one of those things. What, or, or he wouldn't create something bad. But adversity and suffering raise a person up. Because when you have difficulties, you have to let go of your attachment to certain things that maybe you thought you never could imagine letting go of. Okay? And in a society that we've become more and more attached to more and more things, now we can't even go to the next room without our phone. You know? It's like, I, I can't go. I, I left my phone. I had to come back from a three hours drive away because I left my phone. When I was growing up, we didn't have a phone. There was no such thing as having a phone. You had a pay phone. Okay? If you needed to call somebody. There's no phone. Now, without a phone, there's no life. Life is the phone. We're so attached to it. You know? It's actually a great thing. That's why I think Shabbat, like the idea of Shabbat is that kids now define Shabbat as the day they don't use electronics. Like that's what it defined as that. Like that's the main thing that religious kids abstain from on Shabbat, using electronics. Say, oh, I can't use my electronics. That's the definition of Shabbat. But you know what? That discipline and ability to disconnect is an enormous gift. They don't realize what a gift it is. It's difficult for them, but the ability to disconnect themselves from something, to have the power to do that, or to see food and say, I'm not gonna eat that. It's not kosher, I'm not gonna eat it. Most people don't have that kind of willpower at a young age, but our kids, they are instilled with those values. So it's hard for them. They see, let's say, their friends eating something they can't eat. But you know what? It's raising them up to a higher level. So that's what the Rambam is saying, that the suffering or the difficulties help us remember what's really important. We have to pull back and say, I'm getting so upset about this. It challenges me to ask, is it really that important? Could I live without it? Do I have to make such a big deal out of it? What's really important in life? We only ask those questions when we're challenged because otherwise we just take everything for granted. But when we come up into a situation where we are forced to let go of something that we were attached to, or we have to suffer from something that we would rather not, it really asks, it really forces us to question what's really important in life, what is truly valuable in life. And that's I think what you're getting, getting at, that the, what Eov ultimately learned from his experience was, I thought what I was gaining from serving God was the material things, but it was the other way around. Serving God was really the reward and the material things were the means to the end. And you know what? When you recognize that, then what the material things are could be a lot more fluid. It doesn't have to be a mansion. It doesn't have to be a fancy car. It doesn't have to be a huge amount of money. Because if you recognize that the ultimate good is the relationship you have with God, which is the eternal and really the everlasting bracha, then you realize that the means that you need to get there could take a lot of different forms. And we know that Hillel, the great Hillel, the Rabbi Hillel, was very poor. I always think it's very interesting and it's very telling. If you look into our history, go back. We can even just go back to our own history. Ask your grandparents or your great-grandparents what it was like in Iran, okay? When they had to take like my, my, you know, where my great-grandmother, let's say, you know how long it took them to wash clothes? Do you know how long it took? They didn't have paper 
plates, okay? They didn't have plastic, paper. They didn't even have refrigerators in the old, old days. Everything had to be fresh all the time. Cleaning clothes was a huge undertaking. Taking a shower was a huge undertaking they did once a week, okay? So many luxuries that we take for granted. Just saying that we take for granted that even our grandparents, let's say in Iran, didn't, didn't have the luxuries that we, the basic luxuries. Things we, that, you know, a dishwasher. Uh, you know, the ability not to, you know, the, the ability to avoid having to wash dishes in one way or another, or wash clothes by putting it in a machine, okay? The, these things, or plucking the feathers out of your chicken. That my grandmother had to take the chicken to the rabbi and then pluck every feather out of it, okay? Could you imagine how much harder it was? Now we come, we go to Everfresh, you get the chicken, you put it in the oven, is it? Even I can do it. You know? It's, it's that much easy, easier. So that's one level. But look in the past at the great rabbis we had. In the past, the greatest tzaddikim, okay? The great tzaddikim, righteous men and righteous women, were people who lived lives that we would say, if I had to live with that kind of hardship, I wouldn't have room to think about God. I wouldn't have room to learn Torah. How could I even have any, how could I have a, like a peace of mind to do anything if I had to deal with a life like that? That's what we think. Could you imagine if you had to live like that? How, where, where would you find space in your life to come to a class like this? You wouldn't be able to. You'd still be working. It was nonstop work. It was so much harder. And yet, those generations produced these great righteous people, these great rabbis. And now what do we produce? Nothing close to that. Nothing close to that. So what happened? Why is it that it flipped like that? Because those people, because we, because our lives are so comfortable and are so easy and are so luxurious, we also relate to our service of God as a type of a luxurious thing. You know, it's something that we do, it's extra, you, if, wherever we can fit it in, you know, we, we squeeze it in a little bit here, a little bit there. They were working for every moment. They valued every moment. They said, what's the purpose I'm doing this for? I'm doing it so I can serve Hashem. I'm doing it so I can do mitzvot. Think about like, think about our Mashadi ancestors for one second, okay? And what they sacrificed to be able to keep Judaism. I don't mean this in any way disrespect to any of us, but I doubt any of us would be able to do it even though our lives are a million times easier than theirs were. A million times easier. Okay? And yet we wouldn't be able to make a kind of sacrifice. So how did they do it? How were they able to do it? Because every chicken feather that they plucked, they had in their mind a higher purpose. And we lose ourselves in the moment because our lives are so are easy. We're not challenged to think about what's really important. They were challenged to think about what was really important because they had difficulties that they had to go through. That's the, so sometimes those difficulties and those challenges are the greatest blessing. It's about the perspective. And that's why when you give a blessing to a person, we always give a blessing to the person. Meaning, if you look in Tanakh, whenever a blessing is conferred from a person to a person, it's direct. It's may Hashem give you this or make you this or... Why is that? Because... What you're giving the other person when you give them a blessing, I don't have the power to cause anything to happen to you. Only Hashem does. Even when we say a blessing, we say, may Hashem give you this. Right? We, we don't say, I'm giving it to you. When a parent blesses their kids, they say, may Hashem make you this or may Hashem give you that. No parent thinks they have the power to do it. They're asking Hashem to do it. 
So what is the purpose of the blessing? The purpose of the blessing is to help the child or the recipient of the blessing look at their life a certain way, that they're a recipient of God's blessing, that they should understand that they have a potential God gave them to fulfill and to actualize. And that especially the particular blessings in the Tanakh are where a father or mother saw a specific potential in a child and is saying, may Hashem enable you because you will be conscious of the gifts that you have. You will be conscious of what you're capable of doing. You'll consecrate that to the service of Hashem and Hashem will do the rest. That's the idea, changing your perspective on your life. If you live your life for a higher purpose, it becomes easier because the details become much less significant. It's, and that's the, like, the difference between the bridezilla and the regular bride, you know, is that the, bride, the regular bride just wants to be married to the person that they love. They don't care that much about the details. Not that important. What difference does it make? It's a few hours, okay? I'm telling you this. It's a few hours of your life, and I, you're going to forget about it. You're going to forget it. First of all, it's going to go by like that because you're going to be busy. Everyone's going to be bothering you the whole time. You're not going to eat. And you're going to say, I can't believe it's over. It's going to go so quickly, number one. You're going to barely remember it. You're going to look at photographs from it. Or we don't have photographs anymore. Whatever we use now, digital pictures. Okay? You're barely going to remember it. Don't, get, don't sweat the event. You understand what I'm saying? The key is that you're being united with somebody that you want to spend your life with. That's the essence of it. If you understand what it's about, then the details aren't that big of a deal. Am I right? About everything. When you understand what it's really about, the details become less significant. The essence becomes what's significant. And that's true of life. So the person who's living to serve Hashem, they don't get caught up in the particulars. They're blessed because they're using the, whatever potential God grants them to, to serve the highest purpose. And that is the blessing. And therefore, whether it's when they're down, they say, what can I learn from this? How can I build myself up? How can I use it as an opportunity physically or spiritually to emerge stronger? And when things are going well, they say, am I doing enough? Am I investing enough of this goodness right now in my real purpose? Or am I getting lost in the details? And I don't, don't see the forest for the trees. Because if you don't see the forest for the trees, eventually you bang into one of the trees. And then you have to pick up again. And that's part of the challenge of life. We all do it. You know, we all lose our perspective once in a while. And then reality smacks us and we wake up. But that's actually a blessing. It's not a curse. It's a blessing because it forces us to recalibrate with what's really important. So if you want to be blessed, I think the essence is focus on the ultimate purpose of all that you're doing. And the details become less significant. The details become less significant. And you can see blessing in anything, whether it's, whether it's a challenge or it's an advantage. It's a blessing because it's something that's going to bring you a step closer to your purpose in life. And if you look at life that way, that's why, you know, you find like, it's a very interesting thing. There's a whole genre of literature. And again, I'm doing a little comparative religion for a second, but like uh, in the Christian world of like the saints of Christianity always were complaining a lot, you know? They suffer, oh, I'm suffering. And they, they wear like monk clothes that are uncomfortable and they, they, they take vows of silence and they, they believe that like suffering is, is in and of itself is like something to be like put up on a pedestal, suffer. And, they, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a whole religious attitude that they have that somehow suffering is like, is holy. But... 
You never find that in Judaism. You never find it. It's, an, it's a very fascinating thing. You don't find one iota of that kind of attitude in anything in Judaism, that suffering is a, is a value. You see that the, the, when, when Rabbi Akiva was killed, he was martyred and put in the flames. He said, I'm showing my love of God. I, this is, I'm, I'm, I have a zechut. I have a privilege that I can sanctify God's name with my last breath saying Shema Yisrael. He's being burned to death. I, I don't think it was pleasant, but he put it in a perspective that it was a blessing to him. Oh, I never thought I would be able to do this mitzvah of sanctifying God's name. I'm not saying any of us could think that way in that moment, but that's the way that the rabbis are pointing us to think, to be able to see, not to relish the suffering, not to think that the physical suffering is the good, but the fact that you have the ability to see in that difficulty or in that pain or in that suffering some kind of a means to a higher objective, that is really living the life of blessing. That's really what it means to live a life of blessing. Look at David HaMelech. Was, would you say David HaMelech was a blessed person? He wrote Tehillim. Beautiful Tehillim. Everyone reads Tehillim. It's very inspiring. It's tear-inducing, wonderful poetry. Was he a blessed person? He didn't have a day of peace in his life. From, from like the beginning of his career until the end, it was one problem after another, after another, after another. He never had a moment of rest. Maybe a moment here and there, but like not very many. Okay? And yet he's, he's the Mashiach. He's the person that we look up to as the example of what the Mashiach is going to be. And he's the ancestor of the Mashiach. And he's the person praising and thanking God when he had so much suffering that what, most of us would have given up from it. But what does he say? He says, because of the Torah, Hashem. He says in, it says in Tehillim in Kuf Yutet, the very long, longest chapter of the Bible, 119, Tehillim 119, he says, if it were not for your Torah, which was my plaything, my plaything, Shashu'i says, my entertainment, I would have been lost. What does it mean? It means because I was focusing on what was really important in life. I was focusing on the Torah. I was focusing on Hashem. I was focusing on even using my, my moments of difficulty as a way to sanctify God's name or come closer to God. That's why I never was lost. That's why he was able to write all those beautiful thanks to Hashem, even though he was experiencing a life way worse than the life that we would ex are experiencing from a physical standpoint. From a standpoint of comfort, he was never comfortable. He was always on the run, somebody chasing him down. Okay, somebody persecuting him, always. None of us are running from persecutors right now, I hope. Right? Not yet. We don't want to take anything for granted, but we hope not. Right? And yet, we have all kinds of troubles and this and that, and we get lost in it. He's the one writing all this Tehillim. He never had a good, barely a good day in his life from our perspective. We'd say, how could I? I couldn't live like that, running around, hiding in caves, somebody trying to knife me in the back every second. How could he live like that? And yet he's the one expressing thanks to God. But the reason is because he saw that everything in his life was a means to serve God and come closer to God, the ups and the downs. So even the difficulties, he said, what can I learn from this? How can this open another door for me? How can this raise me up? If you think that way, you can turn any experience into something that is maybe not a pleasant experience, maybe not a comforting experience, but a meaningful experience and therefore an experience of blessing coming closer to Hashem and putting your life in perspective. Because it's the people who actually go through the most difficulties who have the healthiest perspective. They're the least attached to the material things. They're the least attached to the particulars. They're the most able to adapt to like the ebb and flow and the ups and downs in life because they've been through hard times. So they've been prepared to do it. And in that way, 
You know, it, it's a, those ups and downs, we should appreciate them because they teach us how to adapt so that we're not so fragile. It's like if you're made of glass, you shatter too easily. If you're too hard and rigid because then you, everyone's always treated you like delicate glass, then you also shatter if you ever slip out of somebody's hands, you know? But if you are a bendable material that you've been bent a little bit and t- twisted around, then you're also able to deal with and, 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 and weather the storms of life and come out even better. And, and I think that's, that's the message I want to, wanted to share with you. And, I, and do you have any, any questions, comments? Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the question. So I just want to make sure the recording heard your good question. Okay, so the question is: Is all so? Is all? Is there such a thing as curse, or is all curse ultimately bacha? So that actually is summarizes basically everything I wanted to say. That for the person disconnected from Hashem, there could be klala. Because since the person is disconnected from Hashem, they're just going to be brought down and demoralized by when things don't go well in their life or they don't go the way that they wanted. So it is a klalat. So it's a withdrawal of good because to them, the good was the physical things. But to the person who wants to get closer to God, they're just going to see it as an opportunity. Somehow they're going to find in it a way to, to, to seek more meaning. So when Hillel is barred from going into the Beit Midrash and he climbs on the skylight and he listens to the Divrei Torah, okay, he saw that as an opportunity to demonstrate even more how much he loved the Divrei Torah, so I'm going to climb onto the skylight, you know? Or whatever it is, he saw it that way. Instead of saying, ah, these people are so rude, they won't let me in for free, I'm leaving, I'm never coming back. He didn't say that. Yes, basically. The question is this, if I, if, what's the benefit of a punishment? Right? In other words, a punishment is if, if you punish somebody, let's say a child or student or anybody who's a subordinate, right? Someone that you have the power to punish. So the objective, if you punish the person and you give them a consequence for their action and they just come out saying, well, I did my time in jail, now I'm gonna go back to, to doing crimes again. Did the punishment work? No, so the purpose of the punishment is to educate the person. So when they come out, they learn something from what they did, why it was wrong. Right, so that's why the punishment should fit the crime. You know, we always try to make a consequence, let's say, so that children will learn from the mistakes that they made, or criminals in that case will learn. So the purpose of even a punishment from Hashem is to educate. It's like the Torah says, like a father, like a father torments his child, like a father meaning disciplines his child, that's how Hashem disciplines you. It's not in order to hurt you. I always give this, and another example you might have heard from me before, but I love this example because I love real examples that came from my life that I knew this person. I knew a chazan, and he was a, a, a very immaculate reader of the Torah. Very, he was very young. He was younger than me, and I knew him a long time ago, and even then he was maybe 21. He was such a good reader and a beautiful voice. And he told me a story. His father was a rabbi, and he said, my father, when I was a kid, on Shabbat, I always wanted to sneak out and go play with my friends on Shabbat, but my father would make me read the parasha every week. He would make me sit down and read the parasha every week. 
He said, so sometimes I would try when he was distracted, you know, sneak out of the house to go play with my friends when he wasn't looking and he would start to take off his belt. You know what that means. I mean, if you're, old, if you're my age, you would because that, that was a sign that your dad was coming to smack you. My dad would just like touch the buckle of his belt and that was like, that was the sign that we had to not move. So I was like, okay. You know, that was what, and I'm sure your parents, maybe your parents, because they're more, it's in like different time now, Probably, maybe they didn't do that, but I'm sure their parents did. You can ask them. Um, that was like the thing, especially with Persians, I know. So um, anyway, the, the, he had the same thing, belt. So he said, my father would take his belt, and I'd think, okay, dad, bring the parasha. And he would read the parasha every week, so his father would, he said, I was so angry, my father would like do that. He said, today... If I could have my father's belt, I would hang it on the wall and kiss it every time I came in the room. It's because of that belt that I know how to read. Right? So that's, in other words, the, his father wasn't doing it because he wanted to smack him. He was doing it because he wanted to benefit him by insisting that he spend his time to learn. And in the end, the son saw the benefit that he got from doing that. You know, like Mr. Miyagi and Karate Kid. I know it's an old movie now. Maybe some of you haven't seen it because it's like an ancient movie. But Mr. Miyagi makes Daniel's son, you know, do all this washing of the car, waxing the car, wax on, wax off, paint up, down, right? And in the end, finally loses it. And he's like, I waxed all your cars. And he says, show me wax off, show me wax on. He sees, oh, he actually taught me all these moves. Because he said you have to wax on, wax off the exact way. Now he taught, he was basically teaching him, he didn't realize So he thought he was torturing him, making him wax his cars like as payment for the lesson, but it was the lesson. And that's that's the same thing. Hashem puts you through something because it's a lesson. And we just, but if we're not willing to learn it, then we don't even gain from it. It just becomes it just becomes a suffering, and then then it's a klala actually. It's a bracha when we adapt to it, we learn from it. Okay. Yes. Okay. It was really nice seeing everybody. I hope we'll be able to have a few more shirim before. I depart. And then, of course, you're all invited to Israel because I'll be there for six months when I'm not allowed to leave and you can come visit me there. You know what? Is that okay? Thank you all for coming.